Uh, I have the privilege of introducing our speakers. My name is Julian Solis. I am a member at Grace Family Baptist Church, and I'm very happy to, to have two men who love the Lord and who love the church, and we will all see each other in heaven one day, but we have a forum here where we get to talk about some of the differences within um, our theology. Uh, Michael Horton is an author, a professor, and president of Whitehorse Inn, and uh, this discussion is going to be good, I think, for many of us. It's going to be introductory and helpful, but you really need to read some of the literature that they've written about covenant theology. Uh, I recommend Michael Horton's book, God of Promise. I believe we have a few of his copies at his book table. Uh, please come by his book table and uh, see some of the other literature that he's written there. And he'll be arguing for the Presbyterian's view of covenant theology. We also have Pastor Jeff Johnson, who's also an author, and he's written a book called The Fatal Flaw, and we invite you to come by his book table and see some of the literature he has as well. Uh, this book in particular also speaks to uh, covenant theology, and um, I highly recommend it. So without further ado, we're going to get started. And the way our format is going to be is each speaker will have a chance to present the, the view that they hold um, along with their understanding of the differences between the other person's view. Um, they'll each have 20 minutes uh, to, to do that, and then we'll have a, a chance to respond. Uh, both of the men will be, have a chance to respond to each other, and then I have a couple of questions as well. Um, so we're going to invite Mr. Horton, if he can come up here and be our first speaker. Thank you, Julian. And, uh, you know, this is a really uh, terrific conference. First of all, there aren't a lot of conferences on the doctrine of the church across America. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed that, but uh, the theme, uh, the doctrine of the church is, is uh, not just everywhere and anywhere. And so it's wonderful to see Christians coming out, spending a weekend to think about these things because the church is so important. Um, so much so that Christ gave his life for it. So to have, have these conversations is, is wonderful. To talk about our agreements is a wonderful opportunity, but to take it so seriously that we're even willing to talk about our disagreements and have a conversation about it uh, in a spirit of charity uh, uh, is, is really, is really uh, wonderful and encouraging. It's wonderful that we don't live in the days when, uh, when people were exiled to Rhode Island uh, <laughs> uh, if they didn't agree on this question. Um, may I begin with a word of prayer? Our Father, we thank you for giving us baptism, for giving us your covenant mercy in Christ. We thank you for giving us faith to embrace uh, that promise that you have made to us. We pray that you would... Uh, by your spirit, illumine us to interpret your word, to hear that word, to discuss, and even debate our different interpretations of that word in a way that honors and glorifies you. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, the first thing to say is that uh, Presbyterians or Reformed, the, when, we say re, when I say Reformed and Presbyterian, I'm thinking of the continental reform tradition and the British Presbyterian tradition. So typically that's become a broader term uh, in, in recent decades. Uh, but when I talk about the reform view of this or the reform view of that, I'm talking about 
reform defined by the three forms of unity, the Belgic Confession, Heidelberg Catechism, Canons of Dort, for the Continental Reformed, and then the Westminster Confession and Catechisms for the British Reformed, and all of that is Paedo-Baptist. That tradition uh, is understands covenant theology in terms of a Paedo-Baptist framework. Paedo meaning child and baptizing children. But the first thing that I really want to say is uh, that we are wholeheartedly in favor of baptizing adults. We would like to baptize as many adults as we possibly could. We just like to include their children. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the question really is what, the question isn't what are the, the what do you do with, with adult converts? We all agree about that. That's why the book of Acts is filled with people believing and then being baptized. The question is what did they do then with their children? And let me just lay this out. This isn't the only thing that we disagree with, but this is really the heart of our different understandings of uh, covenant theology. First of all, to cut the story very uh, briefly, the, the co- uh, I, I think that Jeff and I would both agree that, that, that humanity was created in a covenant of works, a covenant of creation, with the ability, by his own free will, to, because of the, the gift that God had given uh, him, perfectly capable of obeying God and fulfilling the law. Adam, our federal head, fell, again, by an act of his own free will, of course, within the, uh, the, the uh, uh, permitted decree of God, but he fell. And immediately after that, something that God did not owe at all the the promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 initiated the covenant of grace. And then in chapter 4, you have already the division of the two families, the family of Cain, uh, building a a temporal city, and the family of Seth being distinguished by the fact that then men began to call on the name of the Lord. In other words, that's a covenantal term. They began to invoke Yahweh as the great king who would save them. And so these two families, these two seeds, uh, develop one according to God's common grace, the other according to God's saving grace, until you get to Abraham, who's called out of a moon-worshipping family, uh, to, to be a kind of new Adam. Uh, not the last Adam, but to, in, a, in a certain sense, to, uh, to, to be a, a new Adam. And Genesis 12, 15, and 17 give us the, the main uh, liniments of a, uh, an Abrahamic covenant. Now, this was an absolute, unconditional covenant where Abraham didn't make any promises. God made all of the promises, which is odd. In, in these ancient Near Eastern covenants or treaties, usually the king would deliver a lesser people from a marauding, invading army and then annex them and just hand them the rules. This is what you will do because I've delivered you because you are now annexed to my kingdom. And if you don't fulfill these terms, then I will disannex you. I will dismember you. I will do everything. You think this invading army I just saved you from was bad? You haven't seen anything yet. 
I will bring all of my forces against you and throw you out of my land because I now claim this land. And that's the that that's what you would expect, but what's kind of odd in this situation is that God makes all of the promises. Abraham doesn't make any of the promises. And then it's ratified by a vision in which God see uh, in which uh, God appears to Abraham as a smoking firepot passing between the pieces of animals. In other words, assuming upon himself the burden, the curses for the covenant if they aren't fulfilled. Very odd. It looks like a, an ancient Near Eastern political treaty, smells like one, but in this case, it's God who is assuming the curses if, if the covenant isn't fulfilled. Very different from the covenant at Mount Sinai that Israel swore before the Lord. And then Moses ratifies that by sprinkling the blood upon the people and saying, blood be on your heads. He, as he sc- scatters it, He says, in accordance with all of the words you have sworn, all this we will do. Very different kind of covenant. and That's your usual traditional kind of ancient Near Eastern political treaty. I have redeemed you. Therefore, you will follow these terms, these stipulations. And if you don't, I will exile you from the land. Hosea 6-7 tragically relates, like Adam, Israel broke my covenant. But there's still that other covenant that is sworn unilaterally by God to Adam and Eve after the fall, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's why throughout the prophets it says, I am bringing temporal calamity on you, exiling you from the temporal land, but there's good news because of the earlier covenant, the covenant that I swore in my own blood. And then in the upper room, Jesus fulfills that when he says, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, not the blood I'm sprinkling upon you in accordance with all of your oath, all this I will do, but I'm telling you all this I will do. I'm going to pass between the halves tomorrow morning. I'm going to be tried, and then I'm going to be torn on the cross. I'm going to be... I'm going to be handed over for you. And so the, the, the real question here is, I'll give you six questions to think about, and, and uh, just, just laying them out, not arguing the points, just laying out uh, some of the distinctives. First of all, what was the sign and seal of membership in the Abrahamic covenant of grace? Circumcision. It will be a sign between... Me and you, says Yahweh, and your children after you. Who received this visible mark of membership? Second question. Who received it? Believers, like Abraham, and his male offspring. Genesis 17:7. You and your seed. And that's the formula over and over again in this Abrahamic covenant. You and your seed. So then the third question is, are new covenant members part of the Abrahamic covenant? And, and that's answered in many places, but especially in Galatians, where Paul says to give, uh, this is Galatians 3.15, uh, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. 
Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, the Sinai covenant Israel swore, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, the Mosaic covenant, sworn at Sinai, it no longer comes by promise, the Abrahamic covenant. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. And then he goes on to say, verse 23, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Jesus Christ, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. And so we are children of Abraham, who then are members of the covenant of grace, believers with their children. And that's exactly what we find in the, uh, even uh, uh, in Acts 2, where at Pentecost, uh, Peter preaches the gospel. People are cut to the quick and they say, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized for the remission of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children. And for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God calls to himself. So that formula, you and your seed, carries forward into the New Testament. As, for example, in 1 Corinthians 7.14, where one believing parent is said to make the children holy. Well, if they're holy, if they're set apart covenantally, what is the sign and seal that does that, that visibly sets them apart? That is baptism in the New Covenant, as circumcision was the sign and seal in the Old Covenant. According to uh, Paul in Colossians 2, 11 through 13, baptism replaces circumcision. Paul says this, this uh, uh, circumcision made without hands. Uh, uh, let me quote it exactly. Not that there isn't some uh, debate over the, the meaning of this passage, but Paul says, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. The sixth question then is, who should be baptized? Again, the formula is for you and your children. The covenant is made with believers and their children, and you have household baptisms. Uh, you and your house is the formula that's used with regard to Lydia in Acts 16.15. She believes, and then she and her house are baptized. The Philippian jailer, Acts 16.31-33. Again, the formula, you and your house. All we read is 
The only person we read there believing is the jailer. Same with Lydia. It says nothing about and the household believing, but Lydia believed, the Philippian jailer believed, and was baptized, he and his house. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved, you and your household. Paul refers to uh, the very few baptisms he performed as including the household of Stephanus in 1 Corinthians 1.16. This leads to all kinds of other differences we don't have time probably uh, to go into. It's one of those things that once you start uh, unpacking what all of this means, it really does have a lot of ramifications for what you think the church is. For instance, is the church a mixed assembly? Uh, or is it a church only of those who have actually been regenerated? Uh, what do you do with passages like Hebrews 6, for example, uh, where you have people who have once been enlightened, that was, old, that was uh, uh, ancient church speak for baptism, they've been baptized, once been enlightened, have tasted the heavenly gift, what do you think that is? The Lord's Supper have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and have even shared in the gifts of the Spirit but have fallen away. Land that uh, 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 has rain falling on it regularly and produces a crop is valuable. But land that has rain falling on it and it produces nothing but thorns and thistles is just worthless, the writer says. Well, Arminians will go to that and say, see, this is a person who loses his salvation. But the writer goes on to say, but we are convinced of better things, beloved, in your case, things that accompany salvation. And so the question is, what is this third class of people who are not regenerate, but also are not outside of the covenant. But they are children of the covenant who, like Esau, sell their birthright. Why does the writer to the Hebrews compare New Testament believers who go back to Judaism to Esau, who sold his birthright, though he was a, a covenantal child, sold his birthright for, for dinner? So that's always the... The warning, Paul gives the same warning in Romans 11 where he says, you know, don't get cocky, Gentiles. He broke off some natural branches to make room for, for unnatural Gentile branches. And they're only there because of faith. Don't get cocky because a Gentile who's in the covenant who does not embrace the reality that is promised in baptism is in a situation far worse than someone outside of the covenant. If he broke off the natural branches that didn't believe to make room for believing Gentile branches, don't imagine that he's not going to break off the unnatural branches if they don't believe. And so we're always calling our children to repentance and faith. The church is a mixed assembly. But, and this is my last, uh, my last point, it all comes down to whether the church is the place where God is at work, primarily, or whether the church is the place, the people who have responded to God's work. Let me explain 
very, very, very briefly what I mean by that. The thing that really clicked for me, it was very, very hard. I was uh, raised Baptist. I, the thing that, that was hard, that I couldn't get past was the idea that baptism is the believer's testimony to faith and repentance and obedience. It's the first act of obedience. Well, of course, a child isn't capable of that. Everything changed for me when I had a different understanding of the nature of baptism. And I came to understand from various passages uh, that baptism is not primarily my pledge at all. Remember, this is the Abrahamic covenant. I'm not standing out at Mount Sinai saying, all this I will do, and the blood is splashed on me. God is standing there passing between the pieces and saying, all this I have done, given for you, given for this child. And so our children are included with us in those wonderful covenant blessings. God is saying, I will be a God to you and to your children after you. I will give you faith. I will give you repentance. I will give you my Holy Spirit. That is a promise that God makes in baptism. So if, if our children reject that, if our children refuse that, it's not because their free will has interrupted God's effectual calling, his regenerating grace. Rather, it's because they're not elect. And not all who are descendants of Israel are Israel, as Paul argues in Romans 9. And even in the covenant, God is free in his electing purposes to do what he will. But we don't, we don't know God's electing purposes apart from his word. And his promise in his word is, I am a God to you and to your children. And so we believe, for example, that our children who die in infancy, even if they haven't been able to be baptized yet, uh, we will see in heaven, as David was convinced he would see his son in heaven because they're the heritage of the Lord. Uh, and so a lot of this turns on whether we think the sacraments are God's means of grace or our means of commitment. Is it a pledge of the Abrahamic covenant or is it more akin to the Sinai covenant? Are we the ones standing there pledging? Or is God the one standing there victorious with nail-scarred wrists, saying, I am victorious. I have already conquered everything, and I give myself for you. And then the Lord's Supper, too, is not, is not uh, primarily our act of recommitting and retestifying and remembering. It is God's act of remembering, just as when he's instituted the rainbow. He says, every time I see the rainbow, I will remember my covenant and not destroy the earth again. It's a pledge that God makes for us, and we know he remembers his promise every time we take the cup, every time we eat the bread. And as Paul says, the bread that we break, is it not a communion with the body of Christ? The cup that we bless, is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? And so in, in, in uh, Reformed theology, the emphasis is on God's action so that truly baptism is God's visible sign, seal, pledge that what he does outwardly, he will perform inwardly. Just as in the Lord's Supper, too, uh, we believe in the words of our, our confession that what we eat and drink in the Lord's Supper is nothing less than true and natural 
uh, crucified body and shed blood of Jesus. It's not just our remembering. It's not just a symbol of that. We are actually made more and more one with Christ and each other when we eat the bread and drink the cup according to Christ's institution. So it's a real presence of Christ today with his church through these means of grace. They're his means of grace which elicit our response. They aren't made valid by our response. Well, when you have a lot to say and you don't have a lot of time to say it, you can do a couple things. A bridge or speak fast. <laughs> I'll try to speak fast and maybe a bridge a little. Um, first, I want to say I uh, appreciate being in the forum with uh, Dr. Horton. I can honestly say that um, I love the man. Uh, he's been helpful to me, and I don't know of any other podcast that I've referred and recommended more than the White Horse Inn. And so with that, it's an honor just to be uh, with him. But with that, we do have some differences. Uh, We have some uh, similarities. Uh, When we think about covenant theology and Baptist covenant theology in particular, we need to understand what a covenant is before we get started. And a covenant is not that hard to understand. I know there's a lot of books that seek to complicate the issue, and there are some nuances about a covenant that we don't have time to get into. But it's just the legal terms of a relationship. It, it has, it's, it's something that sets the legal terms of fellowship. Now, with God, he sets the terms. And without complete obedience, then there's no fellowship or relationship with God. That's just plain and simple. Uh, the, the soul who sins shall die. And if Adam and Eve, once they ate of that tree, their relationship with God was over. And the, that's what we call the covenant of works. Now, when we think about the covenant of grace, it's... Also a wonderful covenant, but it's not that different from the covenant of works. It still has a legal terms, and it still deals with relationship. It's just that someone meets those terms for us. There's no relationship without righteousness. And we need an advocate of someone who stands in our place. And so the covenant of works demands holiness. Covenant of grace demands holiness. It's just, do we have Christ? That's the, that's the issue. Are you in Christ? And so... When we think of the Old Testament and the New Testament, covenant theology is seeking to understand the relationship. How does the Old Testament relate to the New Testament? I was meeting with a, a man from Romania, never read the Bible, and, and he started with Genesis, and he says, why two books? You know, why Old Testament and New Testament? And that's an important question. I think we need to begin there. Why Old and New Testament? And for the most part, the Old Testament refers to the Mosaic Covenant, which is a covenant of works, and me and Dr. Horton agree on that, uh, and the new covenant, for the most part, is dealing with the covenant of grace. But these covenant of works and covenant work of grace, they're not opposed to one another, other than the fact that we want to be in the covenant of grace in Christ. And there's no covenant of grace without the fulfillment of the covenant of works. That's the key. You cannot be saved unless that covenant of works is satisfied. first Adam broke it. The second Adam fulfilled those legal demands. And so when we think about how to relate the Old and New Testament together and how they correspond with one another, I think we can start with, I think, the quintessential covenant theologian, and that would be the Apostle Paul. And in chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, and I'm going to abbreviate what he says. He kind of puts his covenant position in a synopsis form through an analogy. He said that um, 
Abraham had two sons that were born from two different mothers. Now, one was Isaac and one was Ishmael. They had a lot of things they were in common. They were born by the same father. Abraham birthed them both. But one was born by a bondwoman. One was born by a free woman. And these two children both descended out of Abraham, but one was a slave, one was free. One was the heir to the promises. The other one was um, basically kicked out of the house and told, you know, you're not going to have any of the inheritance. Now, after explaining those, that historical reality, the Apostle Paul says, now listen, Ishmael represents the Jews. Uh, Isaac represents believers, the church. And the true promise was to Isaac and not Ishmael. The true promise was to the church and not to Israel. Now, when Adam had Isaac and they thought, okay, here's the heir, then all of a sudden, a few years later, uh, uh, Isaac's born, Ishmael's there, and and finally uh, Ishmael's kicked out, his mother's kicked out, and it says, you're not going to be heirs. You're not going to receive anything. Now, they got some gifts. There were some external blessings bestowed upon them, but they didn't receive the heart of the inheritance. They didn't receive actually any of the inheritance. And so when we think about that, Paul saying it was actually Isaac who was the promised seed, not Ishmael. It was Isaac, not Ishmael. Now, we Baptist Covenant theologians, we don't say that um, the church was God's plan, Israel was God's plan, and the church replaces Israel. Any more than we would say that Isaac replaced Ishmael. Isaac did not replace Ishmael. Isaac is the fulfillment of the promise. Does that make sense? Isaac may have somewhat represented, I mean, Ishmael may have represented Isaac, but Isaac was the promised child. With that said, the spiritual seed, and that's where Paul's coming to. Thus, Gentiles are included into the covenant promise. That, that's who he actually had in mind. He was promising Abraham some children. But the real promise was not the physical seed. It was never the Jews. The real promise was believers, the spiritual seed. We don't replace Israel. We fulfill Israel. We don't replace the Old Testament uh, nation of Israel, we are actually the fulfillment of that Abrahamic promise. And with that said, we have to understand that the Abrahamic covenant has to be understood from two different perspectives. And I think this will, we would disagree. We both agree that the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of works. But the Abrahamic covenant, in my perspective, is a covenant of grace and a covenant of works. How can that be? How can it be a covenant of grace and a covenant of works at the same time? Well, I'll illustrate this this way. I'm a rich man. That's not the truth, but let's pretend. I'm a rich man, and here's a poor man. And I say, I, on the fidelity of, my, of me and the fact that I'm, I'm a rich, rich man, I promise you a billion dollars, but on this condition, your son has to earn it. I promise, and I'm going to fulfill this promise. Now that would seem silly, because I don't know your son, and your son might be lazy. Why in the world would I promise you that, based upon the obedience of your son, unless I knew that that son would be Jesus Christ? And that's why 
Paul made it clear. He said he, when he talked about this promised seed, he wasn't talking about seeds in the plural. He was promising one seed in particular, knowing that that seed would be born under the covenant of works to fulfill that law. And therefore, all of Abraham's physical seed, just as Isaac was born under law and under the flesh, every seed, not, there was no physical, this is my position, there's no physical child of Abraham that was born in the covenant of grace. And that's where we differ. The physical children of Abraham were all born in the covenant of works, even Jesus Christ. He was born under the covenant of works. Why? To fulfill that promise. And that's what we see in Genesis 17, the giving of the Abrahamic covenant. We see this kind of this dichotomous nature, this unconditional promise, this conditional requirement in the covenant. Genesis 17, verse 6 says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offsprings after you throughout their generation for everlasting covenant. To be God to you and your offspring, singular, after you, and I will give to you and to your offspring, singular, after you, the land of your sojournings, of the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Here is some unconditional, I will, I will, I will, you can trust me, I'm going to do this. Then it shifts from this certainty, and no doubt the Abrahamic covenant is certain, based upon the fidelity of God. I do believe that He did pass through that, that animal there, and He says, let the curses be on me. God says, I'm going to do this. But He's thinking about Jesus coming. Jesus is coming. But then he turns from this unconditional and puts the requirement upon Abraham and Abraham's seed. Now this is what's required of you. In verse 9, And God said to Abraham, As far as you shall keep my covenant, uh uh-oh, I'll do this, you do this. You shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring, and after throughout their generation, this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and the offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. An uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Now that is not a covenant of grace there. It's a covenant of works. All of a sudden there's a requirement, there's a responsibility, and the son, the children who are not circumcised, you're broken the covenant. And you'll be cut off. Cut off from the people of God and cut off from a relationship of God. This is, if you're going to have a relationship with God and His people, you're going to have to have be circumcised. This duality could be seen in the Davidic covenant. God promises David a king, but He says your children have to obey if that's going to come to fruition. Psalms 132 says, The Lord has sworn in truth unto David, unconditional. I'm going to do this for you. He will not turn from it. Of the fruit of the body will I set upon thy throne, if thy children, that is conditional, if thy children will keep my covenant and my testimony that I shall teach them, their children shall also set upon the throne forevermore. You're going to have a son. I promise you that your son is always going to be on the throne. Oh, by the way, they're going to have to obey me perfectly. If that doesn't happen, I'm going to take them off the throne. Now, that would seem silly if it wasn't for King Jesus that the Lord really ultimately had in mind when He promised David a son to set upon His throne. So we see the Abrahamic covenant placed Abraham's seed, you know, you and your seed, this circumcision placed them under a 
bondage, under a condition. It didn't bring them into the covenant of grace. It put them under the covenant of works. And I believe that this circumcision was symbolic not just for an outward circumcision of the flesh, but we can see throughout the Old Testament that this circumcision implied the circumcision of the heart. This is really what's required of you, that you not just be outwardly circumcised, but you circumcise your heart. And I was like, well, that's impossible. They can't do it. Just because it's impossible to keep the law doesn't mean we're not obligated to. Amen. We all have to do it. Now, we need an advocate, someone to do it for us. If not, we're in trouble. But this condition is placed upon them. I believe um, circumcision does symbolize the new heart. We can see that in Colossians 2. We've already heard that read. We can see that in Romans 11. We've already heard that read. Uh, we see Jeremiah 4. And then when uh, Jeremiah tells them that you better circumcise your heart and the one who doesn't circumcise their heart shall be cut off from me. Jeremiah 9 talks about that. Abraham understood that the condition of the Abrahamic covenant included full obedience to the law. Even prior to the Mosaic covenant, Genesis 18. Listen to these words carefully. Genesis 18. This is ex- continuous explanation of the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation and all of the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, and he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. And why? Why do your children have to do righteousness and justice? Why do they have to keep this law? He goes on to say, So that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Tell your kids, obey me so that I might give you what I promised you. I'm a rich man. You're a poor man. I'll give you a billion dollars on the condition that your son earns it. Now tell your kid to earn it, so I might give him what I promised. That's the nature of this covenant. Abraham understood that. Moses understood that the condition of the Abrahamic covenant includes full obedience to the law. Deuteronomy 7 Moses writes, Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken unto these judgments and keep them and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant of mercy which he has sworn to thy fathers. Moses is saying, Just obey. Keep the law. Keep the covenant. So I may give you what I promised Abraham unconditionally. Christ understood this. John 7, he says, Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you're circumcised a man on the Sabbath, if on the Sabbath man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may, be, may not be broken. So even Christ says, listen, this circumcision, infant circumcision, not believer circumcision of Romans 4. Infant circumcision represents keeping the law. And, and he says, this circumcision... Christ links up with obedience. Paul does the same thing in Galatians 5. Moreover, Paul also, um, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Romans 2.25 For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. And on and on he says that this circumcision... It's not just a New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament. It's not just facing the Judaizers who were mishandling the Old Testament, which they did do that. It's interpretation of circumcision that was handed down through 
uh, Abraham and Moses. Third, Abraham's physical seed were born into the covenant of works as evidenced by the Mosaic covenant being established with the physical seed of Abraham. So, if the Abrahamic covenant is just pure grace, covenant of grace, then why does the Mosaic covenant come along 400 years and say, now you have to obey if you want these promises? Here's these promises of the Abrahamic covenant. Now Moses is saying, now you've got to obey. Now that's reneging the conditions. It can't be of grace and then condition later on unless you change things. It, it, Moses say, listen, if you want this promised land, if you want this kingship, if you want this dominion, if you want these things that Abrahamic covenant promised, you better obey the law. And so the Mosaic covenant places these blessings of the Abrahamic covenant in a conditional framework. Fourth, Abraham's physical seed were born into the covenant of works as evidenced by the blessings of the Abrahamic covenant being predicated by the Mosaic covenant. Deuteronomy 7 says, Thou shalt therefore keep the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which I command thee this day to do them. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to these judgments and keep them and do them, the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant of thy mercy which he has sworn to the, your fathers. Exodus 19. It says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among the peoples. So, wait, I thought the physical seed were already the people of God because they were born into the Abrahamic covenant. Why is Moses saying, Now you have to obey if you want to be the people of God? Well, the only way that cannot be a contradiction unless the Abrahamic covenant placed the physical seed. Just as Ishmael was born into slavery, so is the nation of Israel. The physical seed is not the true Israel of God. The physical seed never wore. That's the Baptist position. Physical seed, had no, they're not in the covenant of grace, and two, they have faith in Christ. Fifth, Abraham's physical seed were born into the covenant of works as evidenced by Romans 2 and 3, and actually Romans 4. What Paul does in Romans, he kind of knocks the crutches out of the, out of the Jews who thought they were special because they were the children of Abraham. I mean, we're the covenant of, we're in the, born in the covenant of grace because we're in the Abrahamic covenant. Abraham's our father. So, well, don't think that you're anything special because Abraham's your father. Don't think anything special because you have circumcision. Don't think anything special about you having a law been given to you. All these things, all these blessings and advantages don't mount to anything salvifically unless you repent and place your faith in Christ. And Paul goes on to say in Romans 2 and 3 that the true seed of Abraham are believers. That's true in the New Covenant era. That was true in the Old Testament. Six, Abraham's physical seed were born in the covenant of works as evidenced by Jesus Christ being born under the covenant of works. Is not Jesus Christ the son of Abraham? He is. He's a, he's a child of Abraham. So if he was born in the covenant of grace as evidenced and signed and sealed by his own circumcision, why did he die on the cross? No, he, he, he was that, just like all the other seed, he's like, okay, here's your obligation. If you, it's in the Jews, the nations of the world is going to be blessed. So here's, oh, come on, come on, Jews, bring salvation. All the Jews failed at it. But the, the, the unfaithfulness and the failure and disobedience of the Jews make God unfaithful in His promise? 
No. Because Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. He is that physical seed. He was literally the physical seed of Abraham. He was born under the covenant of works. He was circumcised in the flesh. He was circumcised in the heart. He obeyed the Mosaic covenant law. And by his obedience, the blessings of Abraham have been unleashed upon all who believe. You see, what's all this conditional stuff in the Old Testament? Listen, God never intended for the Jews to obey the law and bring salvation. He knew it was impossible. The law was there to help them to see that they couldn't do it. Hey, be saved like Abraham was saved. Abraham just believed. He believed this promise, this unconditional promise. And that's my time. I was just getting heated up. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll submit. All right. We're now going to have uh, responses from each speaker, uh, five minutes each. And Mr. Hoyman, would you please speak first? All right. Wow, thank you, Jeff. Stimulating uh, line of argument there. So much to engage with that uh, I will uh, uh, just focus on a, a couple of things. First of all, uh, I, I think that what's important to see in the Abrahamic covenant is that you do have two things promised, both by grace alone. Both are unconditional, but one concerns a heavenly land and people and the other a, a, an earthly land and people. And uh, neither one of those is conditional. They're both one-sided promise, uh, and, and God gives both of those promises together in the same context. And then in the book of Joshua, God fulfills the earthly promise, right? Over and over and over again, we read, not Israel conquered the land by works. What we read over and over again is that God delivered the enemies into Israel's hand. The the soldiers, the mighty men of Israel, were basically taking a nap while God won Canaan. That's, the book of Joshua is so clear from beginning to end. Then at the end of the book of Joshua, okay, you're in by grace. Now are you going to stay in by obeying the law? That's where the Mosaic Covenant comes in. The Mosaic Covenant never established the basis for inheriting the land. It established the basis for remaining in the land. God fulfilled His promise. He gave them the land all of that land that he promised to Abraham, that now is finished. And Joshua, the book of Joshua says, God, not one of God's promises that he made to Abraham was left unfulfilled. So all of that that God promised to Abraham concerning the earthly seed was fulfilled. That part of the Abrahamic covenant was over. That promise was fulfilled, and now Israel remains in the land by its obedience. But the everlasting rest is found in the obedience of the seed Jeff was talking about. That's, what, that's the point that Paul is making, that the later covenant at Sinai couldn't replace the earlier covenant with Abraham. And that's exactly what the Judaizers were confusing. They were confusing the earthly promise with the heavenly promise. They were con- confusing the conditional covenant with the unconditional covenant. And that's why Paul says, look, how can I say this? Let me be very clear. There are two covenants. <laughs> he says, two, do a de Two covenants, not one, with different aspects. Two different covenants. One is represented by Hagar, 
the slave. Oh, and by the way, those of you who are trying to get the everlasting inheritance through Moses, you're children of Hagar. And your mountain is the one over in Arabia. You know, Sinai, Mount Sinai, that's in Arabia. It's like he's just driving in the, you know, your, your Arabs. This is the worst thing you could tell Judaizers. Uh, uh, and you're not children of Sarah. A Gentile from Irian Jaya may be a child of Sarah. But a Jew who doesn't have faith in Christ is not. And so you have a duality, and the writer of the Hebrews says Abraham was always looking for the heavenly city. That was, that was the ultimate land of rest. And so Paul contrasted the Abrahamic promise with the Mosaic law. He didn't see the Abrahamic promise as also a covenant of works. He explicitly contrasted law and promise. Abraham and Sarah versus, uh, versus uh, Moses. And so when he says, if you, will be my tre- uh, if you obey me, you will be my treasured possession among the nations, he's talking about the earthly promise. As long as you are obedient, you will remain a geopolitical, physical nation in covenant with me in the land. The minute you don't, the lights go out, I exile you, and I take my kingdom back up into heaven, and it's no longer associated with any earthly geopolitical land or realm. And so the, the argument that John the Baptist makes, that Jesus makes, that Paul makes, uh, I would argue, is that Ishmael, Esau, and the Pharisees, and the Judaizers, are excommunicated. They do belong to the covenant. You can't be excommunicated from a covenant you don't belong to. But they're being cut off. They're being excommunicated. Jesus is the seed. But, Paul also says, we are Abraham's offspring. We are the true children of of Abraham. And so, yes, Jesus is the seed who fulfills the covenant of works. We agree on, on such an important, crucial point there that, that not even all covenant theologians agree on. It's such a crucial point. If there is no seed who fulfills the covenant of works, we can't get it by a covenant of grace. Amen. And that's such an important agreement that we have. But Jesus is the seed. We're Abraham's offspring because of our older brother. And when, when Abram's told to keep the covenant of circumcision, I, I, I would understand it to be precisely because it is the sacrament that separates visibly the children of Abraham from the, uh, uh, from the, the children of uh, unbelievers. And uh, so, yeah, it, without the sign and seal of the covenant, uh, there isn't at least a visible indication, a visible pledge. They may still be the seed of the Lord. They may still be saved. But there is no visible pledge on God's part that uh, these children belong to the Lord. But we baptize our children because we believe they already belong to the Lord. Not in order to, not in order to make them the children of God, but because they are the children of God, they have the right to baptism. Yeah. I also believe that the uh, the land and the physical aspect of the Abrahamic covenant were fulfilled. And I think if you understand the Abrahamic covenant having two sides to it, a promise and a condition, it was the promise side. That God said, I'm going to do this, that preserved that physical side. 
You know, it's like God said, I'm going to do this. And no matter how wicked the nation of Israel was, God kept them alive. Unless God had left us a seed, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. God, God was preserving that nation and preserving that, that people. It's not because the physical nation of Israel was godly or in the covenant of grace, per se, unless they had faith. It was because he was preserving the seed whom he promised. You see, Jesus was born a physical person of the child. He was the child of Abraham, and he was under all these conditions and all these obligations. It's like, Adam broke it. Now, this covenant works is placed upon the Jews. Now, Jews, you better do this. But the Jewish nation couldn't do it, but there was one Jew who could. And that's why Jesus said, we can be the children of Abraham, not because we are Jewish, not because we have good DNA in our, in our bodies. It's because... By faith, we get united to Christ. And by faith, once we're in Christ, we have all the blessings of Christ and that righteousness that, uh, that Christ fulfilled. And so I think, you know, I'll close with this quote by Charles Hodge. And I think this Charles Hodge was a Presbyterian. He um, should have been a Baptist because he sounds like a Baptist. <laughs> <laughs> in some things. In some things he doesn't. But uh, in the Princeton Review of October 1853, he writes this, and I think this is what I'll sum up everything on. He said, we need to keep this clearly distinguished. Uh, quoting uh, Charles Hodge, it is to be remembered that there were two covenants made with Abraham. Now, I might not say it that way, but I would say Abraham, he represents two covenants, like out of Abraham come the new covenant, the Mosaic covenant. They both proceed out of Abraham. The flesh, the spirit. Okay? By one, his natural descendants through Isaac were constituted to a commonwealth, an external community. By the other, his spiritual descendants were constituted into a church. Charles Hodge, do you know what you're saying here? The parties of the former covenant were with God in the nation, the other God in His true people. The promises of the national, natural covenant were national blessings. The promises of the spiritual covenant, the covenant of grace, were spiritual blessings of reconciliation, holiness, and eternal life. The condition of the one covenant work circumcision, the condition of one is circumcision. What? The obedience of the law. What? That sounds like my position. The conditions of the other were, and they ever have been by faith in the Messiah, as the seed of the woman, the Son of God, the Savior of the world, I would add the seed of Abraham. There cannot be a greater mistake. Here it is. This is Baptist. Become a Baptist, brother. <laughs> there cannot be a greater mistake than to confound the national covenant with the covenant of grace. That is, the old covenant with the new. The commonwealth founded as the one with the church founded with the other. Hodge goes on to say, when Christ came, the commonwealth was absolved and there was nothing put in its place. The nation of Israel is gone. The church now is made visible, remains. The church doesn't replace Israel. It just Now that Israel is gone, you can see it clearly. Abraham was in the church. But you could, it was just this commonwealth kind of masked it and covered it up. There was an external covenant, nor promises of eternal blessings on conditions of eternal rights and subjection. There's also a spiritual society with spiritual promises on conditions of faith in Christ. The church, therefore, is the essential nature, a company of believers, and not an external society requiring merely external professions as its conditions of membership. That sounds like Baptist teaching that there's a physical seed, there's a spiritual seed. The worst thing you can do in your theology, not worst thing, brother, but one of the things that cause problems is when you say, okay, believers and their seed, you're taking believers, who's the spiritual seed of Abraham, 
and mixing it with physical seed where Jesus says, no, it's, this is my family. Don't say about my mother, my father, my family is believers. This is how you become in the, uh, the part of the Abrahamic covenant, the fulfillment of that is by faith, faith alone, not by natural birth. Can you say that for me? Um, and Mr. Horton, can you come back up here? We have our recorder right here, and I just want to ask um, a couple of questions in closing. No time? Okay, three minutes. All right, thank you for keeping us on time. Uh, maybe just in closing, we can say that uh, we love covenant theology, we love reform theology, and uh, we want to see reformation in our culture, and we can do that as Presbyterians and Baptists um, together. Though we may not attend... Um, the same church as you've mentioned you know we probably wouldn't covenant together as, a, as church members we can join and um, in reformation together so thank you for opening us in prayer Pastor Johnson can you close us in prayer dear Lord we're thankful for the body of Christ we're thankful for um, Presbyterians I, I don't know where we would be with, without these dear brothers and their books and their theology that shaped all of us I'm sure we're thankful for your son, most importantly, who have, we both all agree on this, that our righteousness is in him, and him alone. He fulfilled everything, and it's of Christ alone. And we, we, uh, we, we all agree that may all the glory and honor and praise be placed upon him. This we pray in your son's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the 2012 Simple Reformanda Conference. For more resources about church membership or information on future conferences, please visit www.gracefamilybaptist.net.